This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Murder Was the Case is a free-form, conversational podcast which makes educated speculations about criminal cases and human psychology based upon the information we have reviewed. The show is intended to entertain and educate our listeners with regard to criminal psychology and behavior. At no point should the content of Murder Was the Case, whether spoken by a host or guest, be misconstrued as a formal professional opinion or diagnosis, nor as a wholly accurate or complete account of any case. Any person discussed as a suspect or potential suspect is innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. If you dig Murder Was the Case on Glassbox Media, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderWTCase or on TikTok at MWTC podcast. I think with his wife, he cut her so much that one of her breast implants came out. Genital mutilation again. Was this all post-mortem? It was. And we asked him why and if this was a psychological signature of the crime. And he said, no, it was just an afterthought. It was just kind of like, I'm here. Fuck it. Why not? Today, I'm speaking with Chris Duet of Criminal Perspective one of the most original and chilling true crime podcasts old Dr. Murder here has come across to date. Along with his co-host, Andrew Dodge, Chris has interviewed dozens of homicidal gangsters, mass murderers, serial slayers, and straight-up ice-cold killers. And you can actually hear those interviews on Criminal Perspective. Get ready to hear about Chris's little convos with serial killers Phil Jablonski and Robin Gecht, along with Brandon Roberts and Hope Worthy, who murdered three homeless people in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to the Dive Bar, everybody. I'm here with Chris Duet from Criminal Perspective Podcast on the Crawl Space Podcast Network. And I don't normally interview other podcasters, but Chris's podcast is really close to my heart. It's something truly original. And I just want to talk about his podcast because I think if you dig mine, you're going to dig his. And it's called Criminal Perspective because it's literally getting the perspective from the criminals themselves. So, Chris, welcome to Murder Was the Case, my friend. Thank you very much, man. I'm really excited to be on your show. And it was very charitable of you to invite me on. (laughs) Well, when you make something as fascinating and compelling as you've made you paved the way yourself i'm of course i'm gonna have you on the show when you're doing what you're doing there is something about actually speaking with criminals which i've done a little of myself i'd like to do more rather than just reading about them that makes a world of difference and so i want to drive people to listen to your show because i want them to hear it from the criminal's own mouths, but at the same time, hopefully take some of the things that I've taught in my show and be able to go, okay, well, hold on. Is that true? What kind of psychology are we dealing with here? And I imagine you've had all sorts because people think of criminals, they think, well, criminals, it's like this homogenous group, but it's not. We're all in different ways criminals. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. not the defining thing of us, but if you've ever pirated something or sped on the road, you're a criminal. You've committed a criminal act in that instance. For that moment, you're a criminal and you got away with that criminal act, right? So the whole idea of what is a criminal, it's in itself a very interesting question. It's funny because in society, you're taught to separate yourself from them. And like you just said, we all in a way, are criminals. And that's the thing is I I think right away when I started talking to these people, I realized that I'm not separate from them. They're not separate. These are people. These were Mm -hmm. once people living in society among me and everybody else. And I think that that's step number one is that you have to destroy that divide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And The more interesting part is to be able to bring the psychological and the criminological and sociological to it. And then you can understand what differentiates one criminal from another and what maybe unites them. So, for instance, when somebody's psychopathic at a certain level, there is something that they do have in common that once you see, you can't unsee it. But for the most part, I don't even think your average criminal, based on how you're selecting them, like perhaps you're selecting them based 
on truly horrific crimes, well, then you're going to see more psychopaths. But your average criminal is not a psychopath. No, no. And we do tend to go after the more deviant criminals. We are able to sometimes pick certain things like that out and maybe see some primary psychopathy or secondary psychopathy, the antisocial personality. We can see mental illness sometimes. Sometimes it's very Mm -hmm. clear in the show. My co-host Andrew and I are, are not doctors or professionals. So we're in no position to diagnose anybody or anything, but we do offer our opinions and we do offer what we see. And sometimes it can be a confluence of events that led a person to that crime and it runs the gamut. And that's what's interesting about it is that we're not just dealing with psychopaths and all criminals are psychopaths and it's not. And it's, it's very interesting to see the dynamics that are there from one to the next. Yeah, and I think later we'll talk about some of the cases and maybe you can tell me what you saw. But I think that you don't have a doctor in front of your name, but in many ways what you're doing is research. Now, are you doing it with a strict methodological rigor? No, but who cares? You're still (laughs) mining all this great raw data, which then everyone can bring their own interpretation to. Like You bring yours and you're entitled to it because you're doing that work. But... I might interpret it a different way. The point is that you've got raw primary source material now. And so once you've mined that and you've put that out there for the world, unless you've selectively edited it in a really egregious way, it's priceless. And hence why you're one of the few podcasters who I'm saying like, no, like you're welcome (laughs) anytime my murder was the case. Because in many ways, I think the research you're doing is more valuable than a lot of the research that professional criminologists or you know psychologists are doing just for that because of the ways that can be used by everyone in the world really including those people with a doctor in front of their name themselves yeah and that's kind of the point is that we wanted to offer the criminal perspective we wanted to get these interviews out there. Of course, there is a lot of analysis on our show from our point of view, Mm -hmm. but that's not to say that this is how things are. It's just presenting all of this information and encourage listeners to make up their minds, come to conclusions, come to probabilities to use it. And that's really why we do it. I think you nailed it with (laughs) saying that putting the data out there is that is the, the biggest piece of what we do. Yeah. And it's original data. That's the huge part. I want to talk first about how you came to the idea of devoting so much of your time to interviewing criminals and like what the process of going through that was. And you mentioned when we were talking before we were recording that you had some life experience that led you to do this, but also have some confidence that you could make correct interpretations and inferences and be able to speak with the subjects without being totally fooled by them or you had something that allowed you to converse with them. So I'm really interested in that. Can you please tell me about that? Even if it's like your biography, whatever, (laughs) you're free to speak. I'll make it short and sweet. (laughs) So when I was younger, uh, I was probably about seven or eight years old. Actually, let's go back a little bit more. In 1989, I watched the news coverage of the execution of Ted Bundy. And that was my very first introduction to it, if you will. And I asked my mom, I was like, who, who is this guy? And why are there people cheering that he was killed? And they said, what, what is going on? She was just like, he was really bad. And he hurt a lot of people. And he was killed for what he did because it was that bad. And I was just like, oh, wow. And that was 19, I was five years old. But that stuck with me. I remember that. A couple years later, my favorite uncle actually committed an attempted murder on an ex-girlfriend. And I believe that same year, Danny Rowling was out in Florida, uh, where where I live. So uh, still a little kid. I remember asking my mom about Danny Rowling. And she told me, I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And she told me, oh yeah, he's killing these people in Gainesville and he's posing their bodies to shock the police and stuff. And I was just like, whoa. (laughs) And uh, so uh, it was a different time back then. (laughs) So, (laughs) but that stuck with me. And then I spent the next several years, my weekends were spent on a prison visiting yard going to see my uncle. I believe he did eight years or so of his sentence for attempted murder. He eventually got out, but I spent a significant portion of my youth 
hanging out in prisons on the weekend. Yeah, so I was a bit desensitized to that, talking to inmates and things like that. I kind of understood how prison life was like and what their lives were like. And going a bit further, just the the interest in serial killers and things like that never left me. Read the true crime books and things like that in high school. And then uh, ultimately, I got a bit older in my early 20s i became good friends with somebody and i was friends with him for several years lived with him and and all this stuff i'll, I'll say his name and everything i've talked about him on my show his name's eric ellis he was a successful musician played in a band toured all that stuff and for some reason he decided to get into organized crime and ended up getting 20 years in federal prison for uh, a home invasion that netted over a million dollars and intimidating witnesses he was involved in an assault that almost killed a man and this was one of my best friends yeah. and i believe around that same time maybe a, a couple years before that i it's just I've, I've always been surrounded by it probably a couple years before he was arrested and i had lost touch with him at that point we hadn't talked for years i decided to send out about 10 letters in the mail to various multiple murderers and i got my first letter back about three weeks after I sent that batch of letters and I couldn't read it very well, but I saw that it was from San Quentin state prison. And as I looked a little bit harder, I made out the name to be Richard Ramirez. So, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pit in my stomach a little bit because I was like, Oh shit. I see my name and I see Richard Ramirez's name. I was like, fuck the night stalker is talking to me. So that's, that's quite the induction because you could write to some serial killers or mass murderers or what have you. And you're like, okay, they're a dangerous person. They've done some evil things, but they wouldn't do evil things to me probably unless I really pissed them off or really got in their way. But Richard Ramirez would, oh, like, yeah. he was an equal opportunity killer he was absolutely brutal so right there it's like you're in contact with richard ramirez he's likely never going to escape and he didn't of course he died of i think it was hepatitis a few years back but at the same time that's really playing with fire because if richard ramirez gets out and he he knows who i am now yeah he knows you know (laughs) i'm guessing you weren't using a p.o box i was using my home address naively Uh, but i've never had a problem doing that and more letters started to come back, the the lesser known, which I that's I prefer the lesser known cases as to the, you know, the more popularized ones, because the Richard Ramirez gets tons of mail and stuff like that. And I'm a blip on the screen for him. But the other ones, they seem to be more eager to interact. And, mm-hmm. and some of those cases, though not well known, are fucking horrific, like terrible. So I started to get more and more mail. And once I got that first batch of letters back, it was game over. And I was shooting off (laughs) 20 or so letters a week. And I did that for several years. Eventually, after uh, probably seven or eight years of writing, maybe I stopped and I didn't do it for quite a few years. And then I eventually was invited to come on the Crawl Space podcast. They found an article that I wrote for Vice Media a few years ago, and they invited me to come on their show and, and discuss my correspondence with murderers and so on and so forth. And I did that. And they always made it a point to encourage me to start a podcast. And they really, they were like, you really need to do something with this. I can't believe you're just sitting with this information that you have and these experiences. So eventually I got a hold of my friend, Andrew, who I met about nine or 10 years ago. I had been writing killers for about a year. He got a hold of me. He had just started. He's a bit younger than me. And he's been doing it the whole time for about uh, about a decade now. So he has similar experiences. He's on par with what I've done and, and he knows how they are and everything. So I was like, hey, you want to do this podcast? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So that's how it got going. Yeah, so sorry, how long have you been doing it now? For about 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. Not not the podcast, though. No, not the podcast. Talking with inmates. The podcast we've been doing since February of this year. How many different criminals have you interviewed on the podcast as of this recording? Oh, gosh. Including ones that you haven't released yet, if you could estimate. I would say probably around 20 or 30. And what's the reception been so far? The reception's been 
fantastic. Initially, we started on Patreon. If you look at our Patreon, we have about 30 episodes. If you look on Apple or Spotify or whatever, we have about nine or 10. Uh, it's because we started on Patreon before we started releasing free content. So Lance and Tim of Crawlspace brought this up. When you're on Patreon, it's hard to criticize something that you're paying money for. You want to like it, you know? So when we hit that free content, we're going to get some real feedback. So we're we're expecting it to, you know, get daggers thrown at us and it's been great. The the feedback has been absolutely amazing. Terrific. So let's start with the first round of interviews of criminals you did. Let's talk about some of the cases. I know we're not going to be able to get to all 20 or 30, but I don't know if you even want to answer this question because the thing about talking about interviewing criminals is they're always listening, but mm. there must be some that are closer to you that's that are in your mind more often or struck a chord with you more than others if you feel comfortable answering that question what were some of the ones that for you personally that you just got really close to yeah there's no question i won't answer i'm a (laughs) completely open book and that's damning sometimes but it is what it is i know it well (laughs) (laughs) the first one we did was a serial killer that andrew and i have known i think he's maybe the second one that i started talking to he was maybe the first that andrew started talking to andrew's had contact visits with him on san quentin's death row his name is philip carl jablonski oh yeah Yeah. Phil writes back. Yeah. I I know a couple of people that write to him. Phil will write anybody, but Phil is, he's a character and he's a serial killer, serial killer. Mm -hmm. So he was great for a first interview. Not a lot of them are as open and bloodthirsty and and all this as Phil is. So we kind of came out swinging with him and his interview Of course, Phil pulls no punches and he's excited by violence and loves to kill and this and that. And his interview is very much on par with that. Now, not to to reduce him to some labels, but I always sort of understand these people at a distance. And I've heard of Phil, obviously. I think he is both psychopathic and psychotic both of those things, right? Or he at least was psychotic. Maybe he's being treated for that now. I don't think he has ever been diagnosed with any psychosis or intermittent psychosis. And he seems to be very lucid when you talk to him. Hmm. He's, I don't think he's psychotic. Okay. Uh, Maybe slightly delusional, but Hmm. There's never been a time where I've talked to Phil where I thought, man, because I, I, I've definitely talked to people where I was like, this person is not fucking in touch with reality whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Phil is not one of them. Phil is very aware. He's rooted in reality. He is incredibly psychopathic. I will give him that. Yeah. And so when we talk about he's open, he likes violence, he'll talk about it. One of the sort of psycho babble terms we use for that but I think it is a pretty useful descriptor is an egocentric serial killer. So he's a serial killer and he's fine with being a serial killer. He's fine with everyone knowing he's a serial killer and he wants to tell you about it. He is like, yeah, this is what I do. I love it. I might even be proud of it. Yeah. You know, I don't want to put words in his mouth. That's not what he said, but that's the idea of what it is to be an egocentric serial killer. You're not wrong in so many words. That is what he said. He is very proud of it. He, he loves it. He enjoys it. He didn't care if he got caught. If he was out today at 73 years old, however old he, he would do it again. He would go kill somebody else. He constantly still talks about fantasizing about killing people and things of that sort. And we've talked about other serial killers with him. He's a student of the game. He loves it. He loves to engulf himself in thoughts and fantasies of sex and violence. And that's his world. And he does not hide it at all. Some of them will hide it. Some of them will deny it. Phil is not one of those. Phil is very open about it. Yeah, it's his identity, really, too. It's his identity, it's his existence, it's the totality of him in many ways, you know? Uh, So can you tell me, I know you haven't necessarily memorized this, and it's okay if you don't have it, but what did Phil do? I seem to remember four victims, and there being some diversity among the victims, not being like the victimology being strict. And I also seem to remember some mutilation, perhaps Mm -hmm. one instance of cannibalism and what I call expressive transformative activity, which is like, I believe he wrote on the body. 
Yeah. So, yeah, lead us through Phil, if you can. Okay. So, Phil told us when we asked him, he told us one of his fantasies right away. His response was, I always wanted to kill one of my wives, is what he said. So, he had a wife that apparently he got to an argument with her. I believe he strangled her to death. And he did go to prison for that. He also went to a prison for a rape conviction, I believe. I'm going off the top of my head. I don't remember the details, but I'll make do. So when he was released from prison, also it's worth noting that while he was in prison, he had a a contact visit in a trailer on prison premises. One would uh, compare it to kind of like a conjugal type situation where you get a a little trailer and you can hang out there. There's a kitchen, there's bedrooms. It's it's a bit more comfortable and you get to be out there for a day or two with your family. He was on one of those visits in the 80s and out of nowhere, he attacked his mother and tried to drag her into a room and was screaming, I'm going to rape you. And I believe he took his shoelaces out and tried to strangle her. His mom and his dad fought him off. I don't believe any disciplinary action was taken for that. They only recently found out about that and took away his contact visits. My co-host Andrew had two contact visits with him before the prison authority found this out. (laughs) And Andrew said he would do weird stuff like stand up and stretch and stick his crotch in his face. Very much intentional. Phil is a pansexual, male, female, whatever. He's an admitted... um, I don't know if he's ever engaged in the act of child molestation, but he's very much into pedophilia. Sexually, he prefers infants and small children. So he says, while he was in prison, he became pen pals with a woman named Carol Spadoni, and they got married while he was in prison. She met him through a pen pal thing. She was a Christian woman. And when he got out, I guess he had said a lot of things that had alarmed her, and she was not comfortable with him being around her. So she told his parole officer, I don't want him coming near me. I don't want him in my city. So they put sanctions on him saying, hey, you can't go near here. She doesn't want anything to do with you. You can't even go pick up your belongings, whatever. And she absolutely was fucking terrified of him, and rightfully so. So Phil was in a community college on terms of his parole, and he had an automotive class. And he murdered a fellow student in that class. Her name was Fatima Van. A lot of people called her Fanny. I believe he shot her in the head, raped her. She was sexually mutilated with a knife in her genitals. And he did write, I love or I heart Jesus. He carved it into her back with a knife. And and there's other mutilations to the body as well. And when we asked him why, he said, oh, I was just practicing before I went and killed my wife. So after that murder, he went to his estranged wife where her and her mother lived. And he raped and murdered both of them. Brutal murder. One of them had duct tape wrapped completely around her face, cut off the nipples. I believe there is some other mutilation involved as well. I think with his wife, he cut her so much that one of her breast implants came out. Genital mutilation again. Was this all post-mortem? It was. And we asked him why and if this was a psychological signature of the crime. And he said no. It was just an afterthought. It was just kind of like, I'm here, fuck it, why not? That was his whole thought process on that. It's so strange that we would go, well, why? Why would you do something so bizarre? And he would go, well, why wouldn't you do something so bizarre? Yeah, and it's weird because it's not, it wasn't experimental in the sense, this was a pretty intense mutilation. So it's so weird for him to be like, oh, this is just an afterthought. It's like, Wow, that's a scary afterthought. So I'll wrap it up real quick. After that murder, he uh, went on the road, killed another woman, a random killing at a, uh, I believe it was a gas station or convenience store, something of the sort. There's sexual assault involved. I'm not sure if he mutilated her, but after that murder, he was caught and linked to the other ones, brought back, and now he's sitting on California's death row. Right, and never getting out. So that's comforting. And it's good to know that nobody's getting to visit him in that situation where he tried to kill his mother again. But I have heard that before, actually, people talking about mutilation as, "Ah, I just wanted to try something new. The serial killer Richard Cottingham comes to mind with that. And I've got to be honest with you, like, I don't believe them. I don't think that they just did that as like, yeah, uh, just see, like it'd be 
kind of interesting to do that. I think that it's something they fantasized about. I 100% agree with you. I don't think that it's a spur of the moment thing. I think that this has crossed their minds once, if not several times before. And even with Jablonski, he did it not once, he did it several times. Mm -hmm. And I think that he may not acknowledge it, but I think it did fulfill something for him. And I think a lot of them, it does fulfill something for them. And there is something to it. They just haven't acknowledged it. Yeah, sometimes... I think it's just difficult for us to understand. But if you think of your own sexuality, and I mean, that's kind of presumptuous, but like, let's say a air quotes, typical sexuality, whoever it is that you fantasize about, whether you're gay, straight, whatever, you realize like, oh, wow, I'm extraordinarily attracted to these people. And you conjure up what I call like a fantasy scape in your mind. It's almost like AR, like augmented reality, but in your own mind, you sort of project them into your surroundings. And maybe on other occasions, you sort of project yourself into a fantasy world with them, which is more like VR. And you have those thoughts and you masturbate to them, right? And you take your cues from what you see and maybe pornography or things that you've heard about. And you kind of encode a script of the things that you like. And then as you actually experience sexual partners you learn new things and things evolve a little but it doesn't stray too too far from that core fantasy except in the case of people who i think are extraordinarily hypersexual that uh, you know they're just doing it so much that they wear out what for me would be you know a lifetime of i'm good with that they wear that out in like a year right yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah i think when we think of that and then cross it with thoughts of resentment or violence and they incorporate violence into the fantasy a lot of people just have trouble going well why would you think of cutting off someone's breast while you're masturbating like because who knows we could do like a freudian type analysis because oh it's about his mother and not being breastfed enough there's all kinds of ways that we could try and explain it but really unless he can explain it which i don't see any reason why we should expect that he could because i don't even think that i could explain my own very normal vanilla right. fantasies, right? Yeah. It's just, I think, a matter of realizing you have to understand that he thought about doing this while he was masturbating and he did it enough that at some point, just the same way that I thought about busty blonde and lingerie and how much I wanted to put my paws all over that and <laughs> do s certain very straight up things with it, you know? Yeah. And then sought out that kind of stuff when I was able to. That's what he did, except, yeah. you know, non-consent as a big part of their fantasy lives. Like, and my fantasies have always been consensual. So that's a part of my sexuality is that I would never, not for moral reasons, I've just never thought about to my recollection, like a fantasy with accompanying masturbation of non-consensual. But for them, right. that might enter really early. That might precede consensual. If we think of someone like Edmund Kemper, who had this idea that, well, no woman would want to sleep with me unless she was dead. Then if you start off with that thought, you start off with dead woman, right? And yeah. so then that's what codes your sexuality. So... I know I've been talking a while, Chris, and I re really want to let you do more of the talking, but that's why I can't believe with those sort of things that it's just uh, something I wanted to try. Yeah. Yeah. I fully agree with you. I think it's definitely something he's thought about. He does associate sex and violence. He is very into raping and attacking and was even before the murders and everything. And he had threatened mutilation in a prior rape case, the one he was caught and serving prison for when he attacked the woman, I believe she had a child with her or he attacked another woman. This was another case. Um, he attacked another woman and she had her kids or a kid with her. And I believe he said something to the effect of be quiet. I'll cut your child's ear off or something like that. And so, I mean, that's indicative of the escalation of his behavior. So for him to say, oh, it's an afterthought. No, it's not an afterthought. You just haven't acknowledged it. Yeah. And one wonders why they're so loathe to admit to that part when clearly they're like yeah i'm a killer i'm a bad guy and i'm cool with it i'm you know but then it comes to like those things there and to kind of maybe pull back a bit maybe it's got to do with the fact that they have so little capacity for self-reflection i mean it, they're also full of shit 
right? So very, very much so. Yeah. 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 And actually the capacity for self reflection and being a pathological liar kind of go hand in hand because if you're lying to other people, you're often lying to yourself too, right? Yeah. And I think he's more caught up with building and presenting his persona more so than accessing himself as a person. Yeah. I think you might be on to what may explain that, why he, you know, is not considering certain aspects of his crimes. But yeah. There's the real Phil Jablonski serial killer, and then there's the Phil Jablonski serial killer brand, mm-hmm. right? So he's probably presenting to you guys a brand of it, even though he's saying, and he's being truthful and saying, I'm cool with it. He wants to control, just like all of us do to some extent, probably you and I a little bit less than others, as we mentioned, but most people do some sort of impression management all the time in different scenarios. And He's probably just thinking, well, that is not part of what we want in the Phil Jablonski brand, like this sort of sexual mutilation that goes deep into the recesses of my childhood and has always been there since I began masturbating. That's not really a good part of the story. We'll just trim that part out. (laughs) (laughs) I've spoken to dozens and dozens of serial killers and of the serial killer variety, I cannot name you any off the top of my head that are incredibly introspective and also possess the intelligence to convey what they know about themselves. I mean, I, I can't. I can tell you some some juvenile murders, some mass murders, things like that. But when it comes to serial killers and psychopathic personality mm. types, I can't think of one off the top of my head that I can think, wow, this person has really analyzed himself and they express it very well. I can't. Yeah, and that is because, let's say, the majority of not all serial killers are psychopaths, and almost all of them are psychopathic. So that just goes part and parcel with that particular, let's just call it a personality disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we move off Phil, and I don't want to give away too much because the idea is to stir up some intrigue to drive people to go listen, but... (laughs) What did you personally find to be the most interesting thing or the thing that stuck with you the most that Phil Jablonski said to you, like the kind of holy shit moment, if there was one? With Phil, I don't think there was one. I've been talking to him for so long now that I'm completely used to him. I know how he is. I know how he ticks. And there's nothing he said that caught me off guard. We've done some interviews where I've had those oh shit moments. And Phil just wasn't one of them. Because when you know what to expect from him, that's what you get. And you're waiting for it. I mean, I would have been caught off guard if he said, I really care about this person or that person, or I, I, there's right. a time in my life where I really loved, you know, this person that would have caught me off guard with Phil because I'm used to blood and guts and gore and murder and mayhem from him. So, but you know, I knew we weren't going to get that from Phil. So there's really nothing where I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> like Phil yeah. just, you know, he is, he is what he is. And, and if you come to uh, expect it, it's just what you get from him. So. Okay, well, this is, I think, a natural bridge to an interview with someone who you did have that holy shit moment with. So let's just lead to that naturally. Uh, Tell me about someone who you had the holy shit moment with. Wow. Well, okay. There's a couple of them, but one of them that you know about, but it's it's not out there yet. You heard the interview. We've we've said who it is before, but Lorenzo Fain, there is a holy shit moment in that, if you know what I'm talking about. But... If people can go back on our Patreon, we interviewed two co-defendants in a mass murder. This was a case in Knoxville, Tennessee, and there were four people involved, and they murdered three people at a homeless camp. And it was uh, Hope Worthy, her boyfriend Josh Cool, their friend Brandon Roberts, and they had another friend named Lacey. Um, I can't remember her last name. And Lacey was found mentally unfit to stand trial and got off. And they they all seemed kind of mad at her about that. And the other three, and, and Lacey wasn't involved in any of the murders. She was privy to what was going on. I think maybe helped destroy some evidence or something, but wasn't involved in the killings. The other three, Hope, Josh, and Brandon, were the ones who committed the murders. So we interviewed Hope first. And we did a two-part interview with Hope, and we thought she was very open, honest, and forthcoming with us. And we talked to her. She seemed like she was being very upfront. We thought it was a great interview. We assessed it a bit. And probably a few weeks later, we got to interview Brandon Roberts, one of her co-defendants. And Brandon Roberts 
we definitely had that oh shit moment because we found out that Hope was keeping a whole other murder from us that happened 10 days prior to the mass murder. They had never been charged with it. And Hope is getting out one day. I believe she got a 30-year plea deal. She did not want to end up on death row or anything like that. So she just didn't mention it to us. But um, Brandon told us that 10 days prior to the murders at the homeless camp, they got into an argument with another homeless man. And Brandon and Josh killed him and stripped him down and sent his body down the river. And they beat him to death and strangled him. And Brandon told me that Hope did know about it. And that was kind of an oh shit moment that there is a fourth murder that none of them had ever been charged with. Also, Hope told us that the murders at the homeless camp started because it was an argument. The argument got out of hand. One person ended up getting killed and they killed the other two to cover it. Brandon told us that that was bullshit. The first guy that got murdered, him, Hope and Josh had planned it about a week prior. So Hope lied to us about that. So it's just one of those things where you never know. So it was a good thing we talked to Brandon. What was it that was placing them in the orbit of homeless people? Were they themselves homeless? They were. They were. And they hung out on the streets, got drunk, had no passion to accomplish anything in life. And that's just what they were. And we know a bit about Hope's background. She had it kind of rough, came from the foster care system. There was some sexual abuse and things of that nature. But Brandon said he had a fairly good upbringing and he was just a bad seed. So Josh, we don't know too much about, but it's just interesting. They have two different backgrounds. I would say Brandon is is much more um, deviant and dangerous than Hope. But that's not to say that Hope is not. Yeah, no hope for hope, really. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, so would it be fair to perhaps characterize these as nihilistic thrill killings? Yeah, I think that would be fair. I think that'd be entirely accurate. They don't seem to really care that much about the situation as a whole. Hope tells us, yeah, you know, I wish it didn't happen and presents herself in a position of saying, oh, I was just going along. I didn't want to be killed myself, which Brandon admitted that he would have killed her and he thought about it, but he didn't. And he's actually upset that he didn't kill all the other co-defendants involved. He feels he wouldn't have gone down for it if he did. So she's not wrong in that sense, but she was very much a willing participant in the murders. So yeah, I do feel that they had this nihilistic sense and they were absolutely 100% thrill killings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the thrill killings of that nature, the ones that seem just the most senseless, like that there's not even a sexual element are commonly associated with nihilism because if you have no meaning in your life and you have no belief in the value of moral structure or guidance or you know some sort of north star it's like well just why not it's interesting like wouldn't it be funny like maybe their facial expression will change like you know they set them on fire yeah and that's that's how it was there is a practical element in the sense that they murdered the other two to eliminate them as witnesses of the first murder but one of those two was raped brandon admitted that All of them had a great time killing them. When they were done, they were talking about, when are we going to do this again? Right. So really, they're serial killers. Uh, Yeah. What's funny is they're 100% mass murderers. When you add that fourth murder 10 days prior, then you're starting to step in spree killing realm. And Depends on whether you consider them to have, like, quote unquote, cooled down. I don't think they did because immediately after that, They were planning the next one and they had it in mind and they were waiting, basically. So I don't believe that there was a cooling off period. I think they were biding their time. They even said that they killed him sooner than they had planned. So, yeah, personally, I I don't believe there is a cooling off period. I think that that first murder 10 days prior and the mass murders at the homeless camp, I would associate them as an ongoing event of murders. I wouldn't say that there was a cooling off period. Are they capable of cooling off and killing again? Yes. Mm. Yeah. And this is where we get into issues with labels and such. And this was something that was even addressed at the San Antonio Symposium. I think it was in 2005 where they said this cooling off period, we can't even really define what it is so i tend to not use that i just i knew that you would be familiar with the term but what i i usually substitute in for it instead is what i call a return to routine now that routine may be planning and and fantasizing but it's a sort of going back to your regular life whether that's as a homeless person or in like the case of someone like dennis Rader, 
a family man, you know, at least on the surface with a job. And it's the idea that you sort of return to the baseline of your existence, even if that always involves to some degree a stage of fantasy and planning and fantasizing. So it sounds like that might be one of those cases where the limit is hard to... Yeah, I definitely think it's arguable, or I wouldn't argue it at all. You know, if someone had a differing opinion, it's just one of those things where, yeah, I think that there is some obstruction in definition, but it does seem to blur the lines, if you will. Yeah, and really, it ultimately doesn't matter because it just comes down to, well, do you include them in the sample when you're doing research or do they get to go in the serial killer book or the spree killer book where do you put them and i think it's more of a problem perhaps for like academic research but ultimately it's a psychological type and it's a moral type and an existential type and that's an interesting case i'm going to look into that one i'm not familiar with that so that was your holy shit moment was they killed another person yeah yeah Yeah. i mean i've had it in letters and things over the years where i would read something and it would kind of take me back a little bit but as long as we've been doing this podcast and, and doing these interviews yeah that was a big one for us we had another one uh, we interviewed a man named Kevin Roby. Kevin Roby calls himself Satanic Christ. We actually had our friend, uh, Dr. Sherry Yasuna, who's a, a clinical psychologist, on with us to kind of help us understand Roby a little bit from, you know, technical, professional terms. And she believes that he's definitely delusional, maybe psychotic. She does believe there's a flavor of psychopathy in there. And he was in prison initially for raping and murdering his sister, which was part of a ritual. He believes that he is immortal and that he is on earth to keep the earth balanced. He is the evil to balance the good on earth and that his final confrontation will be to kill God. And, uh, he, yeah, so Kevin was in prison for the rape and murder of his sister, which he claims wasn't a sexual ritual to seal his pact with the demons. And then the, the, when we talked to him about the demons, he said, uh, you know, the demons have been coming to me since I was a kid. You know, I didn't choose this. This chose me. He's, he's very clearly extremely mentally ill. And he even says, yeah, I've been diagnosed with this and that, but I mean, whatever, you know, (laughs) like he's like, they just don't understand the satanic Christ. Like, but while he was in prison, he murdered a, um, there's an actor named, uh, Lloyd Avery, the third, and he was fairly well known. He was in the film boys in the hood and some other movies. And he ended up going to prison for a double murder. I guess he was pretty well to do. And, uh, they call it Tupac syndrome after playing a gangster in a movie. He became a gangster in real life. Right. That's fascinating. That's something that we could talk about. Yeah. The episode on. Yeah. <laughs> he linked up with the Bloods and got caught up in a double murder, w- went to prison for life, was a very well respected gang member, well respected in prison. He was Kevin Roby's cellmate, and Kevin murdered him in Kevin claims it was a ritualistic killing and painted the the cell with his blood and all this stuff. But the thing that got us, and people can hear this in the interview, we literally went speechless for a second because he kept the body of his victim in the cell with him. They were cellmates for, I think, two or three days after the murder. And he propped him up in his bunk and he put a blanket over him and he tied a string to his hand. And when the guards came for count, he moved the string as if to wave his hand he had been dead for days and that was kind of a holy shit moment like what was the purpose and like did you think you were going to get away with this this happened in the most secure prison facility in the state of california pelican bay and that was another holy shit moment for us okay so i've got a couple questions here i got a couple answers uh no you haven't heard this one (laughs) first of all sorry what year did he go into prison kevin roby yeah. I'm not really sure. He's been in for some time, though. Maybe the 80s or 90s. Well, that's important because Weekend at Bernie's. We talked out. about that. We did. Because <laughs> uh, if he wasn't Satanic Christ, I would say this is the Weekend at Bernie's killer. 
that's uh, when we when we mentioned this to Sherry, she's like, oh, shit, he weekend at Bernie Dam. I was like, yeah. And there's a little bit known about that crime that was out there before, as in we didn't know the method of which he killed him and all that. But Kevin Roby cleared all that up. And what is out there is that it was ritualistic and he placed his body on a pentagram that he had drawn on the floor. Mm-hmm. And there's little things like that that were out there. But painting the cell with his blood, that's not out there. How he killed him. We now know that. Kevin talks about that. He talks about the why. He talks about the ritual, the purpose of the ritual. And that's one thing that I don't think anybody knew is that, you know, he weakened at Bernie him. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part to me. Yeah, I want to know if he saw Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> like, is this I, some sort of intermimetic killing, you know, <laughs> inspired by art in some way? Yeah, he's so fucking delusional that that just blew us away. And we were just like, why did you not think that they're going to notice a skeleton in the bunk at some point and blood all over the place? And another thing that he thought was kind of funny was he had bloody towels in his cell because during the murder, Lloyd Avery blood a lot and he hung up the bloody towels and people initially thought they were entrails and kevin thought that was kind of funny and it's just Uh yeah it's so strange sometimes it just makes life seem surreal and i just go man how did i get here at this moment talking to this guy about you know and it's it's just one of those moments that just i don't know well, I suppose he is surreal, isn't he? Like his inner life is a one of surreality. So when it manifests on the outside, then that surreality enters our reality. Yeah. You think you're just talking to this fucking nut job guy who, uh, you know, has some sort of self-justified propensity for violence and ritualistic violence and stuff. But, ah, man, it's interesting. It is very, very interesting. And it gives you a whole other aspect of the criminal mind. Now, this is a personal question, but this is the other one that arose to me as something that I just want to put on the table because it's something I've written about academically. You seem like a pretty open guy, but if you don't want to answer this question, that's fine. You can answer it in any way you choose. Are you yourself uh, religious or spiritual? Like, do you have a belief in, say, deities or anything like that? No, I don't. I've been atheist for quite some time now. When I was about 12 or 13, I got into looking at a bunch of different religions just because, you know, you're at that age and you start to question everything. And the whole Christianity thing seemed kind of funky to me. So I started to look to see if anything else made sense to me. And the most logical thing that I connected with was atheism. More recently, I'm, I'm a member of the Satanic Temple, but that in and of itself is an atheistic belief more rooted yeah. in social causes and things. But yeah, I'm very much atheist, so n- none of that stuff connects yeah. with me. So what fascinates me is where does religious belief end and delusion begin? And is there actually a difference? I think I have an answer to that question. But I it's think I do too. <laughs> I think it's when you believe with such conviction that it's not that I think or I'm pretty sure or I hope. It's that I know with yeah. absolute certainty, which I think on Richard Dawkins's scale, it's either a one or a five. It's like extreme religiosity. I think at that point you're delusional because you just simply don't have the evidence to support that level of belief. Right. But people are not going to think in scientific terms when it comes to that. They don't. Mm-hmm. This is just something that's traditional and it's indoctrinated and passed through and people just choose not to question it. And it's so ingrained in them that they are uncomfortable with the idea of it being questioned, with the very thought of it being questioned. So I think it's bullshit. But yeah. uh, I mean, whatever. I, I, I don't live and let live, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's stupid. I don't agree with it, but um, whatever. People can think what I think is stupid. That's what's great about uh, (laughs) humanity. Well, that's what the value of just being open to discourse is, right? It's, It's when you start to shut yourself off and you won't have these conversations. That, I think, is when things become maybe dangerous or mm. tribal and fragmented. And that's why I felt just by talking with you, we've known each other now for just a little over an hour coming up on an <laughs> hour and a half. And I could already tell like, this is a guy I think I can ask this question to. Yeah, Not because yeah. I, could, I could tell that you're an atheist. I suspected you might be. Yeah. But either way, there are people that are open to having these sorts of discussions. And those are generally the people I like to speak with and talk to because yeah. 
that's the intrigue in life. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't want to just be in an echo chamber of atheism either. Right. Yeah. Uh, Diversity is the flavor of life or whatever they say. So, I mean, like, it's good to expose yourself to different people and have these conversations and expand your intelligence and your outlook on things. And you don't have to change your mind necessarily, but to be open minded, to expand your thoughts, your reasoning and everything behind that, I think is great. And same thing. I, I, I really liked talking to Kevin Roby in that matter. I mean, his religious beliefs are absolute fucking delusional batshit crazy manifestations of mental illness but i thought it was very interesting hearing what he had to say and it's funny because you can tell that this is stuff that he has thought about and it's very rude it's very sound but it's also bullshit so but to him you cannot convince him that it's bullshit he is satanic christ he will kill guy you know so i don't know well, the story is different, but the level of belief and lack of evidence is the same as, say, like the jihadi who doesn't think if he blows himself up, he's going to paradise. He knows he is, and that's why right. he does it. That's why it's like, well, he didn't really show any signs of being depressed. or I mean, some of them do, but you have those cases. It's like, we had absolutely no idea. Yeah. Why, why would he do that? You know, he was only getting into studying medicine on a university scholarship. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like, it does make sense once you accept that set of beliefs that, look, this is a fast track to paradise, all sins forgiven. It's rational and it's good, right? You, once you accept that, God says that it's good to do this, and it's not only am I doing a moral act, but I'm also doing an act which is going to ensure that I live in bliss for the rest of eternity. If you truly believe that, almost like why wouldn't you do it both good in the objective sense, because God says it's good and God designed everything, but also good for me forever, yeah, to them, it goes beyond justification. It's, it's not only is it justified, it's necessary. They come to that conclusion, and it's so crazy what drives that conclusion home and how differing that can be to people. But it's there, and I guess it just goes to show how dangerous ideology and things can be, or delusions for that matter. But uh, wherever it's rooted or based can be dangerous in, in the wrong mind. Yeah, and I think that is the problem with ideology is whatever character it is, whether it's of a religious metaphysical nature or whether it's secular ideologies like, say, white supremacy or hardcore communist beliefs or whatever, is that they all result in people closing themselves off to discourse and exchange of ideas and know this is the truth, this is the true way. And once you get into that, you become, I believe, a dangerous person, just as dangerous, actually. And this happened naturally, and I can't believe it did, but just as dangerous as somebody who's utterly nihilistic, like in the previous case that we discussed. Mm -hmm. So there you have kind of two extremes that just fell naturally into place over the course of this discussion. That's beautiful. That's it crazy. Rhymed, <laughs> rhyming conversation, right? Uh, uh, poetic, even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see why I'm leaving academia now? Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. I think that people should be convinced to go to your podcast, Criminal Perspective, now. I'm going to check out all of your episodes now. I'm just going to binge it. But I would like to, before we part, maybe talk about because these are sort of the closest to me, maybe one more serial killer case. Yeah, I mean, sure. if I just spent so much time on this, I'm always wondering if you're going to say a name. I'm like, oh, yeah, him or her <laughs> or her, right? Yeah, yeah, could yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. So do you have another serial case on the show? Oh, gosh. Uh, we have quite a few. We did talk to in an older episode. And this one, I was very eager to talk to him. And it was interesting talking to him. But we spoke with Robin Gecht of the uh, Chicago Ripper crew. Um, yeah, <laughs> he was pretty interesting. He's always maintained his innocence in the case. He's quite a character, outspoken. Talking to him was very interesting. Just not even so much because he wanted to use our platform to express his innocence and talk about his case. Where we allowed him to do that all the while we were really paying attention to his character 
and paying attention to uh, how he comes across instead of more of what he was saying. You know, I don't want to give the episode away, but there's definitely some things that stood out to us about him. And that's a really interesting, fucked up case, too. So, yeah, that one is amazing that it's not more well known and talked about that that one's under the radar is frankly baffling giving all the strange paraphilic and ritualistic once again the sort of religious sense aspects of it you'd think that that would be a case that would be at a cultural forefront but it isn't it's lost so trust me on this one go check out robin gecht what I'm going to ask you, and you're right to do this, this is what a psychologist would do, but I, you've got to focus on what they're saying, but at the same time on how they're saying it too. Yeah. Was he sort of talking copiously and copiously and copiously and almost like a train kind of plowing over you? In a sense. I mean, he was very, uh, I, I don't want to say very aggressive to get his point across, but you can tell that he definitely had something to say he had an agenda and he wanted his point of view you kind of get the feeling that not only did he want or maybe even demand it be heard but that it be believed Mm -hmm. what do you think is he innocent what's your personal take on that Personally, I don't think he's completely innocent. I do think that he is in some way involved. To what degree is he involved? That's the million dollar question. That's what I can't figure out. But I do think that there is enough going on there to really kind of say, hey, you are involved in this. Just to what extent? I'm not sure. Yeah, that always seems to happen with groups of killers like Charles Manson, obviously, being the most known case of that but even myself it's like look i know that charlie manson was a bad dude that's pretty obvious but to this day i still don't think he had the level of involvement in those murders that someone like a bugliosi made it out to be the fact is did he do those killings and the answer is no even by the testament of the people that carried it out oh charlie told us to do it which I I think we can call into question the degree to which he did that too. And we can probably never really know because the people telling us are butchers themselves, right? It's right. It's weird because I did talk to Susan Atkins at one point and I know my co-host Andrew has talked to a few members of the uh, Manson family and briefly Charlie, but I mean, he was a, a shit show in himself. You can never get a cogent sentence out of the fucking guy. So he was just chaos personified, but It's funny because I always respond in a way about Charlie Manson that I've never heard anybody else say. And I don't know if it's right or wrong or what, but I do see Manson as a serial killer. After talking to his followers, I believe that Charlie Manson directed and perpetrated these killings. He was the catalyst. He was the push behind it. He was all that. And he used people as his weapons is really what he did. And I don't think he's this manipulative genius. Uh, People think he's this mastermind that can just get these people under his control. No, I think he was the perfect storm. I think if Charlie Manson went beating around on the fucking streets in 2019, talking the same bullshit he did back in the 60s, people would write him off and say, oh, there's fucking crazy ass Charlie. But back then in the hippie era, the, the time, the cultural climate was perfect. The timing was perfect. His bullshit was perfect. He was just simply the perfect storm. It, it, it couldn't happen at, at another time. And yeah, and I do think that people were murdered because of Charlie Manson. And I do think that he used people as his weapons. Okay, yeah, so it was his vision And he guided them toward it. They did commit the acts, but really it was Charlie's idea. And he did give them pretty specific instructions. Their hands working with his brain. I mean, how is that different from his hands working with his brain? It all depends. And it's funky. And then you get into law. And then what is he legally, criminally responsible for? And then that's a whole shit show. And I mean, that the case, that's why the case is still a phenomenon to this day, because it's it's a jumbled fucking mess. (laughs) Right. And that's it. You have your take on it. I think it's more informed than mine. You've actually spoken with some of the Manson family murderers. You will have read the same books as me. It's actually it's such a rabbit hole case that I've I've kind of avoided it because I don't want years of my life to go down it. It's it's like (laughs) JFK or JonBenet Ramsey. I get the gist of it. I get the gist of different arguments, but I'm just not 
getting sucked into the vortex because I don't see what I can really add to the conversation that isn't already there. Yeah, but, it's it's a yeah. dead horse at this point. But I mean, this is really not much that anybody can add to it. The case has been looked at through the the deepest microscopes at this point and everybody just has their opinion on it and that's just you know it is what it is right and i'll just end the manson topic by saying i'm gonna leave the ball in your hands there because i believe you've done more quality research on it than i have and probably greater research but i've really just been eyeballing it so that's cool too do you have episodes out then with susan atkins we don't i talked to her shortly before her death at that point she was literally on her deathbed when i was writing her and her husband who was actually her appellate lawyer was kind of uh taking care of her and um he was typing her letters as she was telling him and and she was at the very end of her life and that was years ago and charlie's dead and andrew i'm not sure if he keeps in contact with any of them but i know at a point he did talk to some of them i don't want to blow up his spot and say who that's not really you know yeah, um I get it, it. Yeah, because it's not out there. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.